Blog Talk Radio.
tonight and we've had a really uh a really long week here with the uh precision rifle course that uh that we're just finishing up. It's been a long seven days. The course is five days but it takes a couple of days of setup and uh excuse me. And the weather has been absolutely amazing. Now a lot of the guys that came to the five day precision rifle course uh, have, have managed to see the the two extremes that we get here. Uh, Tommy and Vic were both uh, here with me for the King course, uh, and it was uh, and that was in uh, let's see, I believe that was in February, and uh, that was 18 degrees with uh, sleet and uh, and ice, and now they're here in the. Uh, 103 degrees, 82 percent humidity, and uh, we just been baking. But it's been a, an absolutely fantastic course. And well, I'll, I'll do a little bit more on the AER for the uh, Precision Rifle course in just a minute. Uh, I would like to start off the show tonight with uh, with one of our other uh, instructors here at Battle Road. And uh, besides working at Battle Road, uh, Rachel Malone also uh, is an instructor with the Appleseed Project, and uh, she does a lot of uh, private instructing. And, and this is this is when she can find time to do this when she's not uh, uh, playing band concerts or uh, skydiving or or any one of the many things that she does. But uh, right now, this last week, she's been working, and she's uh, I believe she's been doing this for the last uh, few years at an uh, a school for girls. Let me just bring Rachel on and let her give you the whole story because uh, I think that what she's doing is absolutely fantastic. Rachel, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well, 
This isn't the first year. This is the third year, right? Yeah, that's right, the third year. Okay. And uh, give us the whole spiel, uh, the name of the program and what you guys uh, are doing and and uh, how it's been going this year. Sure thing. Well, uh, the program is called Academy 31, and there's a lot more information about it at academy31.com, including blog posts that give camp updates. But right now we're finishing up week two of our annual two-week camp. Uh, it's a really small camp. I don't, really, I don't know of anything like it. It's out in the country where I live, uh, on the farm where I live. I help to lead it along with a couple other very close friends and neighbors and my landlord. And um, we have uh, 12 to 15 girls come in and stay with us for two weeks, and we teach them a lot of life skills. Uh, we encourage them to seek God for themselves. We have godly women come in and give teaching on scripture and per- uh, personal testimonies. Um, there's, there's a lot of time, like I mentioned, though, for, for skills classes. And we try to be super diverse um, in, in the skills that we teach. Uh, our criteria for picking classes is that to be something that we think pretty much every girl should know. I mean, not, not a super specialized skill, but something that would be helpful for every girl to know. And also something that she's going to use probably in her everyday life. Because there are some great skills, but they might not use them for 10 years. Or they might use them just in an emergency situation. And there are a lot of skills right. that girls, if you know them, you really will use them. And so that's kind of what we focus on. Uh, we do have some elective classes that are a little more specialty. Um, so this year, I'm trying to remember some of our main classes. We usually do some sort of first aid class. We had a couple of days of first aid. We have some EMTs um, and wilderness EMTs who come in and teach that. We did this year, uh, we did lawn care, uh, like mowing and weeding, plus landscaping, planting yards. We did bread making. We did photography. We did floral arranging. Um, and let's see, we've done carpentry in the past, woodworking. Uh, so it's quite a variety there. Um, we did some freezer cooking, mass cooking. And then part of the reason I'm calling in is this year we added a very cool outdoor skills day uh, where the whole day, it happened to be one of the hottest days of the last week, uh, we just spent outside teaching them a number of outdoor skills, including shooting and firearms. Wow. And... Uh... Give us a little bit of uh, of how the day, how the shooting day went. Yeah. So, um, woke up in the morning, and instead of taking the girls straight out to PT, which we usually do some jogging and some exercising and stuff, we had them go outside for their first class, which was fire building, because that's a pretty essential skill to have if you're going to be outside. So, uh, they learned to build fires correctly, kind of the science behind that, not just, you know, hope it gets started, but how to actually ensure that you'll have a good fire that can last a good a long time and, and keep coals and make, make lots of good coals. Um, so we taught them fire building and then we did campfire cooking so they actually cooked breakfast for everybody over the campfire. They just did like typical breakfast food. I think they did eggs and bacon and biscuits, biscuits and uh, Dutch ovens which are amazing. Um, and unfortunately I missed breakfast which was you know a sad thing because it's so amazing but I was out setting up the range because I think the next class we went to after that was to the range, and we split the girls, so we'd have them in smaller groups. And most of them actually never really shot before, not shot much. And so our goal for the firearms class wasn't so much to teach them a ton about marksmanship. I mean, it definitely was not you know, an apple seed or battle road class. It was just to help them be safe and comfortable handling firearms and to give them a really good first experience uh, to, right, to help right. them come back and do more. Mm-hmm. 
So we, we wanted each girl to handle each different kind of firearm and successfully shoot it. So we did shotgun, pistol, and rifle. And we did both an AR and then a bolt action hunting rifle just to have different kinds of action, different things going on. And it was really cool. The girls loved it. We even had some really tiny girls, and they, they all racked the slide because, you know, it, it is possible. Um, they're all able to, to help to, to hold the guns correctly and to uh, make them function and, and shoot and hit their targets. So that was just, it was a lot of fun for the girls. Um, I enjoyed teaching it. I taught with my friend uh, Sunshine, Rachel Lona, and we do a lot of stuff together. So she came out and taught it with me. And uh, let me think what else. Um, next, after that, I think they went to, like, setting up camps. So setting up tents considerations there and then we did knot tying just to help you know learn some good knots to tie down loads and uh, we use them in some practical scenarios um, and that's always a cool class so just pulled out some paracord for that um, we also did our lawn mowing and weeding that day because that's just a helpful school, a skill that not all girls really pick up but it's good to know and let me think I feel like there was now, One more did y'all mm-hmm. did y'all live out uh, uh, in the tents during the camp? Uh, we didn't. Um, all the girls actually stay at my house and they do classes at the neighbor's house. Uh, so that's, that's a good. We should do that sometime, but no, it's it's an indoor thing. Um, some of them do sleep outside, like on the balcony, but no. Um, all that is all the sleeping is pretty much indoors in the house. But no, they learn how to how to set up a good camp and I'll think about placement considerations like that. We didn't have time to go into sheltering, so we didn't we didn't really do that. Um, okay, and then I still feel like I'm leaving out one skill. You'll have to go look at the website to see what I missed. Um, we also made had each girl make a paracord bracelet. This is a great way of storing and carrying paracord with you. So everybody made a paracord bracelet and had a great time, and we were totally exhausted at the end of the day because we leaders taught everything instead of getting outside instructors, but it was a lot of fun. And we're so glad we did it. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> what are the the ages uh, of the the girls that uh, can can apply or can come to the camp? It's about high school age. Um, we don't have a strict limit, so we've had 13-year-olds come. We've even had girls up into their early 20s sometimes. But typically, they're they're around high school or maybe just above high school. Okay. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> Like you said, you can go to the uh, the website. Give the website again, academy31.com. Yeah, exactly right, academy31.com. Um, it has a lot of information about the camp in general, but if you want the updates, um, we have a staff member whose job is to take pictures and write reports every single day. So you can go to the blog. and he's, um, Outdoor Skills Day was day four, so just go to the blog and scroll all the way down to day four, and you can see pictures from that day. And... Uh, <clears throat> The uh, the camp. Uh, while you, as you're mentioning, you said that uh, when folks come to the camp, they're going to be encouraged uh, to seek God, but uh, but it's not like it's required that uh, that it's a religious school or anything. They're just going to be they're going to be encouraged while they're there to uh, to seek God, and 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 folks will be brought in to uh, to speak to them about it. Right. It's not a requirement. We don't. Nobody has to sign a statement of faith at all. Um, we have a lot of people come who are believers, and we have people come who aren't, and that's fine. Um, all the girls, I think, have felt, um, well, uh, okay, to be honest, there have definitely been some girls who came because their parents sent them, and the girls 
for fighting it, sometimes very vocally, uh, for various reasons. You know, they didn't want to come spend two weeks of their life on a farm in the country, you know. Um, But usually by, at least by the end of the first week, if not, you know, by the first couple of days, they're warmed up to each other and they're having a great time with each other and enjoying it. And even though they come from very diverse backgrounds. Well, we, you know, the, you and I have both uh, taught at Appleseed, and I'm sure you probably experienced uh, this same thing at Appleseed because a lot of times to learn rifle marksmanship skills and to bring their family, we make it very family friendly mm-hmm. there. And the kids will come, and, uh, and certainly you'll see them in the beginning. They'll try and have their iPods on, and they don't want to listen, uh-huh. and they don't want to be involved. But after a while, uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a case where the kids didn't finally warm up to it. And the majority of the times, the kids, uh, uh, the, the parents had only meant to bring them for one day because they said there's no way the kids are going to get them to go for two days. And uh, and have the kids, in the majority of the cases, say, hey, can we come back? I'm sure it's the exactly. same way there. I mean, they, they, may, they may think that uh, it's going to be some type of uh, a boot camp or something. But listen, guys, uh, I know most of, uh, I've met, Several other people that are that are teaching uh, at Academy Thirty One, I believe, and uh, mm-hmm. and man, you couldn't ask for a better group of instructors, uh, sharp as razors, and and really nice. And uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'd like to send my girls there uh, when they get old enough to go. And I talked to Tommy about this uh, a couple of days ago because he was asking about you, Rachel, and I told him what you're doing, and he was pretty excited about it too. I think he'd like to see if uh, Brescia and, and uh, Brianna would uh, would if he can get them uh, over to it in the, or one of y'all's next uh, academies. Yeah, uh, what, uh, that'd be great. What is the uh, the cost uh, for a girl to attend for two weeks? The cost is five hundred dollars, and that includes room and board and all the skills classes and supplies for two weeks. And we also have, um, actually, hang on, I'm trying to think. Is that um, yes? I, I feel like this year we did an early bird special. It was maybe even I think it was four fifty if you get on early enough. We also have discounts for multiple girls in the same family. Um, I'm pretty sure, say five hundred for the first girl, then four hundred for the second. Something like that. That's um, a deal. That is a, yeah, that is a yeah. great deal. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell you, I think that uh, I'm going to talk to uh, I'm going to talk to two of the girls uh, this week, and maybe see and talk. I'll talk to you about it because I'd like to to see about getting them uh, to come and and uh, go through the experience with you. Now, when I first talked to uh, the girls about it, I talked to them about it about a year ago. And uh, they weren't excited at first because they thought it was going to be, uh, uh, you know, the ones where the, the classes where you, uh, you're folding napkins and you're walking with the books on your head and stuff like that. Said, oh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would not be at a camp like that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. well, that is, uh, I, I told you, I've been very impressed with, with this, with the class and like I said, this is the third year. Now, uh, over the over the the last three years uh, that you guys have done it, I know that you must have learned a lot about <laughs> how to teach and stuff like that and what to offer. 
Have you guys thought about uh, any kind of expansion or anything? Sort of, yes. Um, we, you mentioned learning a lot. Believe me. Uh, the first year, I'm not sure how we managed to be friends still at the end of the camp because we, uh, <laughs> I think we all saw each other at our worst. <laughs> but thankfully, uh, we, we kind of looked at it. Uh, we took a few months off from thinking about camp. And then we came back. We said, okay, we think some good things were accomplished, but we got so worn out. Um, it was ridiculous. So we restructured the whole camp. We brought in some other staff girls to help um, run some things. We brought in some outside instructors instead of trying to do everything ourselves. And so now we feel like it's very manageable and very doable. Um, we've thought about expanding it some, but uh, we've just decided against it because a lot of what the camp has to offer is the atmosphere. It's just there's a lot of interaction between the leaders and the girls. We hang out with them. We develop relationships with them. It's not so much about sitting down for a class, but about personal interaction and being able to actually do something with your instructor. Um, so because of that, we, we cap it at 15 girls, no, no more than 15. Um, we have sometimes considered doing you know, multiple camps, so you know, one session with 15 and then maybe a different location. Um, right. You know, one time somebody asked us to come to different states. So that's probably the only way that we would expand, but we like to keep it small just because that's a great deal of what the camp is, is that, that small personal interaction. Wow. Yeah, because uh, with keeping it small, I mean, you you do get to spend, uh, you know, a greater amount of time with, uh, with each student, and they get to know – Everybody that's there, you to know everybody uh, around them and and develop uh, relationships uh, with the whole group, which is you're still going to develop relationships and stuff if you go to a larger camp. But, uh, of course, for anybody that's been to any kind of camp type situations, when you go to a big camp, it's a heck of a lot different than it is when you go to uh, a much smaller uh, training situation like what you guys are doing. It's a there was just a, a huge difference. Uh, I know that I went to to camps every summer. I went to the different camps, uh, uh, like uh, uh, what was the one in, uh, near Fredericksburg, uh, Rio. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was Rio Frio, Camp Frio, or something like that. <clears throat> and but that was a pretty large camp. I, I think that there were maybe 400 of us uh, or so around at that camp. But then I went to a smaller camp uh, a couple of years later. Uh, that was probably about 30 or 40. The dynamics were completely different. I kind of felt with the big camps. I felt like my my spirituality kind of got diluted with uh, with the other 400 people, which didn't happen at the smaller camp. Mhm. So. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, we we it sounds definitely are big on relationships. Mm-hmm. We love the concept of, of building the relationships. Um, both just for you know for mentoring and for getting to know them and encouraging girls, as well as for skills classes. I mean, everybody gets personal attention in a class. Um, it's not classes are not lectures; they are hands-on. Um, a lot of times, actually, we'll have split classes, so we'll have electives. The girls can pick. You know, do you want to do the more gritty outdoor class? Do you want to do a little more girly inside class? Um, so they can decide. So it's it's very small groups that lets them um, have. Very personalized training. Now, at the first, it seems like I remember seeing a picture of you guys at the, at the first one. There were, what, either four or five of you teaching the first course? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that yep. was hard. 
if you guys were doing all of the all of the instruction, all the cleanup, all the cooking, all, all the, the paperwork, cooking, all everything the else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we pulled in uh my friend's mom to kind of be camp director and help oversee a lot of things and 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 then we pulled in some staff girls who come and they are amazing. I'm like one of them just uh, does all the photography and blog posts and updates and Another one helps out in the kitchen. We have a, a, like a three-person kitchen crew that does all the cooking. Um, you know, the others do various other other assignments and roles. It just makes it makes it very doable to do camp. It makes it so we're not exhausted at the end. Well, okay, I'll take that back. We're still exhausted, but we're going to hopefully be alive at the end. <laughs> and not and still <laughs> friends. Yes, and still friends, and we still like each other. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, does the uh, does the camp occur at the same time each year? We've been doing it uh, the first couple weeks of August, um, kind of right before school starts up. I think the first year we did it a little bit later, and it was just it was right up close to school. So last two weeks of August has seemed to work well. Um, we probably won't pin down dates until like January next year, but I would I would imagine it's going to be about the same. Well, and is it the date cause of the fact that uh, that the that this is the time period that's usually that body um, are back from their vacations or right uh, and stuff like that right okay exactly because, yeah one uh, one of our part of the year our, but it is the hottest part of the it year is. but I guess you don't have a lot of choice a lot of times because. You know, when the schools are ending at different times, so people are getting out to their vacation at different times, and most people, the first thing, you know, when they get out, they, they dash off somewhere, and uh, and people are, are trying to get off on vacation and stuff like that at the beginning of the summer, which is probably the best time to do it, but I guess it's even hot then. <clears throat> but it's certainly yeah. hot now. Uh, I know that uh, you guys aren't that far from, from me, and... I know you've right. been experiencing uh, the same heat because I was telling folks when we first started that it's been a toasty two weeks here. It sure has. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think uh, the day we did an outdoor skills day, I was probably completely dripping with sweat, completely drenched by 7 a.m. You know, we still had the whole day left. Right. And uh, and can you go through the uh, – uh, and I, I know people can go to the website and check, but can you go through again real quick uh, some of the stuff that that you guys are going to uh, to show the girls when they come to the camp? Yeah, some of our skills classes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So um, let me see what I can remember. We did first aid, um, both a, just a training and then um, scenarios where they got to practice their skills. Um, we did... Uh, homemade cleaning products, how to make those, um, homemade alternatives. Um, let's see, some of our electives were bread making, floral arranging, photography, uh, graphic design, we've done business electives. Um, let's see, our outdoor skills day included um, fire building, campfire cooking, not tying with practical application, firearms where they got to actually shoot uh, handgun, shotgun, and rifle, a couple of different kinds of rifles, and learn how to how those function safely. And um, we taught them landscaping, how to design the yard. We taught them lawn care. We did a lot of uh, 
physical training. So we'll do exercises in the morning, um, PT. And that kind of sums it up. Oh, we did medicinal herbs, just learning how herbs are used for healing, another one of the classes we did. Um, but those are the ones that are coming to mind at the moment. Well, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, you can't, uh, you're not going to be able to teach uh, uh, with the firearms and stuff, uh, uh, the introduction and stuff. You're not going to be able to teach folks to become extremely proficient. Right. But certainly, this is a great way uh, to have your uh, your child introduced to firearms because, uh, you know, uh, and we do that a lot too with uh, with Appleseed. As a matter of fact, I just got through with a uh, a course today uh, teaching. It was a private course for a, a female, <clears throat> and uh, I told her the same thing. I said, "Look, we're not going to because of the amount of time stuff that we have. You're not going to we're not going to make you proficient uh, in uh, in marksmanship and everything else with all of these different farms." But you will be introduced to them. You'll understand how the how to handle them safely, how to load and fire them, and uh, and that will start and certainly give these girls a chance. Uh, uh, it'll give them, uh, I think the uh, uh, the word I'm looking for. My my brain, brain is baked out right now. Yeah, the confidence. Uh, I think to seek additional uh, instruction. Exactly. Yeah, and just the confidence to realize, hey, I, this is something I can do. We had a couple girls come in who really weren't that thrilled about it. Um, at the end, they were kind of saying, hey, that was one of my favorite classes. And one girl I talked to who said that she'd um, shot maybe a couple of firearms before, but it was, it was a, more of a scary thing. And she said being able to do it here in this environment, um, very very controlled environment, very safe, um, she felt much more comfortable with the environment, and then because of that, she grew confidence, and is, and now she would like to go do some more shooting and learn more about it. And that, to me, that was very rewarding to hear because that was our goal, um, to just inspire that confidence that hey, I I could kill a snake, I could address a threat, right. I could I could become proficient enough so I could go hunting if I wanted to, you know, things like that. That's that's what we're after. Right, and. Uh... And that's the place to do it because a lot of people's uh, uh, introduction uh, to firearms instruction and stuff like that, a lot of times it's done in not the, under the, not the best conditions. And uh, mm-hmm. certainly I, I talk to parents a lot about this, that uh, usually a lot of times parents aren't the best folks to instruct uh, their uh well, really, anybody that knows each other uh, like that, because uh, uh, guys are not, the, our husbands are not the best instructors for wives. Wives are not the best yep. instructors for husbands. Fathers are not the best instructors for kids sometimes. I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes. Right, right. Just because of the, the dynamics and stuff involved in it. Exactly. So, so it's exactly. great for them to get a chance to, to learn from you guys uh, doing mm-hmm. this. Uh, yeah. And how many... Uh, I kind of got an idea, but how many instructors uh, and staff kind of were involved in it this time, to, uh, this last uh, event? For the whole camp or for the firearms? Right, right, for the whole camp. Like how many 
the, how many people you have the the original group of you guys, the base instructors. Then you brought in. You said you right. brought in some extra outside right. folks okay. to help with sure, other stuff sure. and. Sure, there are actually a lot of instructors um, involved with it. So there are the four of us. Um, two of the original uh, leadership team kind of moved on to different things. Actually, sorry, three of them did. And so now, a um, couple of us are, few, three of us are left, and we added one more. So there's there are four on the leadership team. We also have four staff girls who, um, like I mentioned, help with logistics, running the camp, and hang out with the girls and and all. Um, in addition to that, we had, I want to say, 10 others come out just to teach you know, a short class for an afternoon or to speak um, um, or give a testimony or something. Uh, so most of those this year were actually from the Austin area. We have flown people in from diverse, um, I think we, did, we had some driving in from Dallas and San Antonio this year. Wow. And uh, if... If anybody's listening <clears throat> and they want to attend, they can go to academy academy thirty one dot com and check out the website. And also, um, if uh, if if say somebody is listening and they say, "Wow, that sounds really great. I'd love to go and uh, you know and give a class in canning or something to with these guys." Can people contact you and talk about that? You know they're welcome to. We usually uh, we usually like to know our instructors or or know something at least something about them. But absolutely, if there's somebody who says, "Hey, this is this is right up my alley. This is something that I I've got a heart to do," um, send us an email. Send it to hello at academy31.com. Use the numbers three one. So academy31.com. Um, there's a, a a message form, an email form on the website, which is academy31.com, where again the email address is hello at academy31.com. Our phone number for Academy 31 is 512-829-1031. So yeah, feel free to contact us either to say, hey, I want my daughter to come next year, or hey, I'm interested in, in teaching. We also are looking at having some just one-day events throughout the year. Um, that would be for probably for women of all ages to come in. Like we might have an outdoor skills day that would include firearms. We might have um, a food a food day that would include maybe freezer cooking, food preservation, foraging, that type of thing. Um, you know, something themed. We'll have a more business right. and uh, theme. So yeah, sign up. Check out the website. Sign up for the, for information on that kind of thing as well. Wow, that sounds really great. Also, you know, sometimes there are folks that uh, that they hear about something like this and and they are moved uh, in some way uh, to want to help. Maybe somebody wants to, uh, I don't know, to make a donation or something. Is there is there a, a way that that's possible? That is possible. Um, I believe that's actually set up on our website right now um, where you can, you can go to academy31.com and make a donation. If it's not, you know, uh, we do have a PayPal account. Um, so somebody could just send us an email and let us know they'd like to. Okay, because because I, I like I said I'm I, I'm planning on uh on actually sending uh, sending you guys one of my savages, but if I didn't have uh, a child to send, I think I would this is something that I think I could get behind because if we had more of this, 
I think that our nation would be, uh, I think would be much healthier. I think what you guys are doing uh, are, is really fantastic, and uh, and I hope that the folks listening will consider uh, uh, contacting Academy Thirty One uh, by going to Academy Thirty One dot com and uh, see about uh, getting uh, some of your kids involved in this or to make a donation. Uh, and Next year's date will be decided uh, later on or, or right around the beginning of 2015, but it will probably occur in the month of August, correct? Correct. I look for it to be the first two weeks of August. Okay. Uh, anything else you got? Um, I do, actually. I um, wanted to thank you and Battle Road for uh, loaning us some cool steel targets that the girls really enjoyed using for our class. Okay, great. Well, did they <laughs> did they shoot the uh, hostage targets? Yes, they did. They had a lot of fun with those. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a lot fun. more fun and, to actually uh, hear the feedback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, good. Uh, and uh, while I have you on the phone, mm-hmm. uh, you guys, uh, since you guys may not know this, but. Uh, uh, Rachel is also head of uh, Texas Firearms Freedoms, and uh, I would like, uh, if you've got just a second, if you could mm-hmm. give us uh, an update on the things that Texas Firearms Freedoms uh, has going on and the things that people need to be aware of right now as far as uh, legislative items and stuff like that. Absolutely. I've got just a minute. I'm going to go get back to the girls because we're having evening activity coming up. Um, but okay. really briefly, um, I run TexasFirearmsFreedom.com, or Texas Firearms Freedom, which is a gun rights organization. The goal of it is to help uh, to equip Texans to stand up for gun rights. So my goal is not for you to send me to the Capitol as a lobbyist, but for me to give you as Texans information about how you can be involved to change gun laws to help our freedoms here in Texas. I believe that freedom uh, is kind of based in gun laws. Um, If our gun laws are very restrictive, um, our freedom in general is thus very restricted. So that's why I'm focusing on gun laws. Um, So we have our legislative session coming up starting in January 2015. It is already time now to start thinking about that. Um, I have a few biggies. Basically, if you can be very involved and you have a lot of time, send me an email, call me contact me through the site, which is TexasFirearmsFreedom.com, or get hooked up with some of the other organizations. Um, One that I really recommend is Come and Take It Texas. Um, Really, definitely, uh, fully recommend them. Um, But if you don't have a lot of time and you want to help out, try to clear your schedule for spring of 2015, probably around March, um, to come to Austin and testify in the Capitol hearing. The tricky thing is we're not going to know until maybe a week in advance when the actual hearing is for a bill, but the more people we can get to show up, the better it is. So um, that's, I cannot emphasize how important it is to show up. If you can't stay and testify, at least sign out the computers of the Capitol to say, yes, I support this bill. That's a huge thing. Um, beyond that, uh-huh. try to call call your legislators, um, call your senator, your, your representative, um, Obviously, we have elections in November, so it may or may not be the same person. So let them know, I support this measure. I support this bill. I don't support this one. That's really important because they keep track of that. And then the last thing was to connect. 
Um, so, like I said, network with other people. Come and take it. Texas is a great organization I recommend. Um, find, your, find other political, um, liberty-minded people in your area. Connect with them. Give them updates. Um, working alone, you can do a lot, but working with others, you can do so much more. So those are my three biggies. It's um, come, clear, clear your schedule to come to the Capitol, and then call, call your legislators, and connect and network with others. Well, listen, I know you got it going, but uh, I would like for you to, in the next few weeks or so, next couple of months, I mean, uh, I would like you to come on and uh, and talk more about Texas Firearms Freedom and also to give uh, folks a uh, lesson in in how to get more involved because uh, I think you've, yeah. you've done a really fantastic job with that. And you started at the, uh, you know, we had you once before on to talk about how you got started. I'd like for folks to hear about that again, but also for you to tell folks again how they can get started uh, right in their own neighborhoods, how they can make a difference in their own neighborhoods, and uh, and be part of the part of the solution of safeguarding uh, our rights and freedoms, especially as you said, which is a great point, is that uh, the the Second Amendment freedoms really provide kind of a uh, uh, kind of a, a benchmark on on how well our other freedoms are doing. All right, well, Rachel, thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak, and thank you for what you're doing with uh, Academy 31 and with uh, Texas Firearms Freedom and the work that you do with us when you're working with us at Battle Road. Well, you're welcome, and thank you so much. I appreciate your work that you do, both on the station and with Battle Road and everything else you're involved in. I appreciate your encouragement, and it's always a pleasure to come on and talk with you. God bless you, and uh, and uh, say hello to everybody uh uh, there for me, and I'll see you when I see you. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> well, uh, I really appreciate the the work that Rachel is doing, and she does a lot. She's a, uh, she's a dynamo and uh, just a great person, too. Just a uh, salt-of-the-earth young lady, and... Uh, and I also want to tell uh, Sam while he's on the the other uh, the other side of the phones here, listening and screening the calls and everything else. So I really appreciate uh, Sam D being here every time I'm here. He's he's there too. And uh, Sam, I, I thank you very much for for doing that, for taking the taking the two hours a week uh, out because uh, over the course of the year that adds up pretty soon. Uh, you know, at the end of the year, you look at it and you go, well, I, I think I just now put in, uh, uh, even if you're only here for the two hours during the show, I think that's almost two 40-hour weeks. I know that I put in close to four 40-hour weeks by uh, uh, doing the research and the prep and answering emails and stuff like that. It doesn't seem like it, but, uh, my gosh, by the time you uh, by the time you, you add up all the hours, uh, it comes out to uh, it comes out to quite a bit. So Sam, thank you. Well, thank you, and I wouldn't miss it anyway. <laughs> well, how are things going? Hey, by the way, I uh, I saw the uh, the picture of you there. Uh, I guess I don't know if that's a new picture, but uh, I saw the picture of you on uh, on Facebook, and uh, you're looking awfully Talibanish. <laughs> that that's a new picture of me. Yep. And, uh, now, is that, that like has anything to do with your job, does it? No. 
too cheap to buy any razor blades uh, last Thanksgiving, and I gave up shaving. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys that don't, yes, you guys uh, that uh, haven't seen a picture of it, she's uh, like I said, he's he's awfully Taliban uh, Taliban looking there for him. Now, and of course, uh, I don't know if the folks know it or not. That's that's one of the things that uh, Sam used to do. Is he used to uh, I don't know how much I'm going to say about this, but he used to be uh, like uh, part of the, uh, the 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 training groups uh, uh, that would help the military train in their pre-deployment exercises before they went to Iraq and Afghanistan. He would help put together uh, the folks to make uh, the realistic villages and stuff like that. And I thought that maybe uh, you were just uh, going for that whole look. Uh, so, but uh, and we were talking about that last night because you know, I've got some of the other folks here with me. You know Talon uh, from Appleseed and uh, Bolt Gun, John Hawes, and uh, right. we were talking about how uh, uh, many years ago it was that you were very uh, you were very clean shaven except for the the big handlebar mustache and. Uh, and now you've got the, the full Santa Claus look. <laughs> well, uh, I, uh, how is everything going there right now in New Mexico? Because you guys are uh, very rapidly uh, becoming part of the new front lines uh, with uh, the Ill- illegal immigration. And not just that, but also the... Uh, there's a lot of pushback going now in New Mexico uh, as part of the all of the, the national pushback uh, against a lot of the the government. And when I say government, I'm, I'm not talking about just up in D.C. I'm talking about government as it pertains to national, state, and local. But part of the pushback on local government's use uh, with the real heavy-handed law enforcement uh, impression or pressure that's going on. It seems like New Mexico is coming to the forefront there, too. We had a serious problem in Albuquerque. Uh, Policemen up there seemed to shoot people more frequently than most other places, and there was a lot of questionable shootings. Uh, It reached the point where they actually called in the Department of Justice and asked them to investigate. And uh, there have been some rather large demonstrations and uh, there's been a little bit of uh, throttling back on the part of the Albuquerque Police Department. Uh, they're starting to realize that people are not inclined to tolerate that heavy-handed action. Uh, they're very and, much... Uh, uh, we're very Western out here in a lot of regards, but we, we kind of draw the line on people getting shot that don't need shots. Well, you know, it it just seems, and and I want to make it very clear that uh, that I am uh, I'm very pro uh, law enforcement. Uh, uh, I think that uh, the majority of the folks that are wearing a badge and are serving second are good guys. There's a problem though that I think that and I was discussing this with. Uh, with Talon uh, on the way back from the airport the other day because we started out as a discussion about uh, 
uh, Islam and the the Muslims around the world in America and stuff like that about how uh, I was telling him and I said, look, I said the certainly the the vast majority of folks that uh, uh, that fall into the Islamic uh, faith that are Muslims, <clears throat> the vast majority of them are really good people. They're the people you'd want as your friends, as your neighbors. They're, they're really good people. But uh, even though there's only a small percentage, the fact is that there's a, mil- I mean, a, a billion, over a billion folks uh, who fall under the heading of the faith of Islam right now. And if you only take a small percentage, you take 1%, you've got <clears throat> uh, over a million folks that are radical and uh, and who want to kill people of other faiths and stuff like that. Now, that's still a very small percentage, but the the problem comes because of the fact that the majority of the Muslims, uh, they don't want to go out and condemn the acts of, uh, of the radicals that are doing this, uh, that I think that are, that are bastardizing uh, the faith of Islam. And that's where the problem comes in, because you know if the if the 999 million folks stood up and told the other one million people said, look, what you're doing is an abomination. It's not part of the faith. It's not. We don't want you associated with it, with this, with us and with our faith. We don't. We condemn what you're doing. <clears throat> if they started doing that it would pretty rapidly uh, get isolated and probably eventually end up getting, uh, going the way of, uh, of a lot of the, uh, the other uh, fanatical uh, bad things that, uh, that, that religions do. But they're not doing that. Uh, the majority are not doing that. They're keeping their mouths shut. And, and in a way, I can understand it, uh, because I'm sure that they're scared of uh, the really bad guys. But that also means that when they say, when they get upset and said, why do you treat us all, or why are you saying this about all of us, it's because because nobody else is condemning it. And uh, it seems like that is the same thing that goes on in the law enforcement and that is that you've got uh, the uh, 95% of law enforcement that uh, is, they're good guys. They're doing the best job they can. They're doing it uh, the way they're supposed to be doing it. But then you've got the other 5% that are uh, that are doing the really bad things. And the problem is that the you know, you've got the, uh, the code of silence. The you know the blue code, and the other officers aren't uh, aren't calling the bad ones on the carpet for it, and that gives that allows them all to be painted with that brush. That's uh, that's quite true, Scout. Uh, you know there there are good people in majority positions in law enforcement, but because they've been raised in that that. Uh, got to maintain the line and, and hold it for everybody. They're not too willing to uh, call foul 
on, on their brothers out there, and they kind of need to learn to do that. We're starting to see some some small gains in it. Here in my county, we have a very responsive sheriff, and uh, he's made it very clear to his people where they can go and where they can't, and taking some pains to make some constitutional education available to them. And uh, it shows. It shows. Well, and, uh, I mean, hopefully that'll spread. <laughs> that's good. That's good because we are really, we're really pushing, uh, and this is all across the nation, because if you look at the events uh, that uh, are occurring in Ferguson right now, uh, in uh, right around St. Louis and stuff, you'll see that. <clears throat> and of, of course, a lot of the, there was a, a gentleman that was explaining what he thought the reasons were. This was, uh, <clears throat> I believe, it was. Uh, well, I, I read this a couple of days ago now, but I, I wish I could. I wish I would have grabbed it to, uh, for the show for tonight. Uh, what he was saying was that that nationally, that people all across the nation are getting tired of the way that they're being treated by law enforcement. And because of, uh, and it's my opinion, that because of uh, a lot of the folks that are doing the things that are bad, I'm talking about the, the beatings, uh, the shootings, and not just that, but also the the things that they're pushing that I think are uh, they are eroding the Constitution, especially a lot of the uh, a lot of the the searches that are going on, a lot of the uh, the seizures that law enforcement and the government are doing. You know where they're they're seizing money and property, uh, and folks that are even folks that are completely innocent are having to really fight to get their money or property back because. They're seizing it under, uh, uh, not under criminal uh, uh, statutes, uh, but under civil statutes. That uh, uh, it's getting uh, it's getting to the point where where a lot of folks are getting tired of it, and they are voicing their frustration in a way that they're addressing it to all police. So now all police feel that they are that they are under attack. So you have this thing growing where you have uh, the citizens becoming angry with the police, and now all the police, even police that go out of their way to do uh, their job, which they should all be doing, but even those folks are starting to feel like it's an us versus them. And the more it gets into an us versus them situation, the, the harder it gets. The, the the more bad things are going to go on. And the, like I said, the the rioting right now that's occurring in uh, uh, around St. Louis here in Ferguson is a pretty good example of it. <clears throat> if the people will take the time to make their desires clear, uh, especially to their local elected officials, the guy that controls that chief of police, who's a hired hand, uh, it'll happen. And likewise, if they make their desires known to their sheriff, uh, they don't have to be obnoxious about it, but they do have to go up and say, this far you go and no more. 
and uh, I think that they'll be accommodated by the by the local policeman after a while on that. Uh, you know, when you were talking about civil forfeitures uh, a moment ago, uh, Rand Paul introduced a bill in uh, in the Congress the other day to modify that and require due process. And uh, whether you care for Mr. Paul or not, that's a worthy bill to get behind. And I would suggest that people uh, start letting their desires be known on that to their congressmen, their senators and, and representatives. Uh, Absolutely, because right now the way it's set up uh, is a lot of the departments and stuff, they'll make forfeitures, and then they'll, they'll uh, derive direct benefit from those forfeitures. You know, their, their departments will get the money, they'll, and, uh, of course, just like anything else, you know, it gets abused. Uh, I'm not saying that they, they do in all cases. I'm just saying anytime you, uh, anytime you have a system like that, it gets abused because uh, it was a long laundry list of, of uh, abuse of, that, of this system where folks were, they were seizing assets and using them for, uh, uh, for things that, uh, that they shouldn't have been used for. Uh, and I, I was reading... Uh, the beginning of Paul's bill, and I think it also included uh, a section that was stipulating that the the funds that were seized would go to either to charities or to the general fund, so that the departments weren't getting a direct benefit. That would decrease some of the uh, uh, you know some of the the stimulus to do that because uh, you know if if you make a, if you can force somebody to forfeit something, and you're going to, you're gonna, your department's going to receive the benefits of it, then, uh, then you might be tempted to to do it, and and even uh, even do it in a way that uh, kind of stretches the lines on it. Where if you're not going to receive the direct benefit of it, then maybe there'll be uh, less incentive. Uh, to do so. So I think that was part of the, the bill that you was introducing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, they say if you take the personal profit out of it, uh, that that changes the whole character of it, uh, reduces the incentive to be arbitrary in, in making those seizures and, and uh, very much worthwhile uh, part of that legislation. It's uh, It's gotten so bad that People really can't uh, can't travel with cash. If you're out in Middle America, uh, making your way down the highway, and don't like to use credit cards like me, it's not uncommon to have a pretty fair wad of cash on hand when you're driving. And uh, nowadays, if uh, a policeman happens to find that, uh, they can seize the stuff, and you got to prove you came by it legitimately. They don't right. have to prove right. you came they're, by They're going to seize it, and, and then they're going to make you prove uh, that it was legitimate. And certainly uh, most people, you can prove it, but that's going to cost you money. It's going to take the money away from you. Uh, there's been a lot of cases of this recently. Folks that, uh, you know, they had uh, uh, maybe they received inheritance or they uh, – they drove out of state uh, and they uh, bought a vehicle or they sold one and they're traveling back and uh, the people uh, search them or search their car and they go, hey, you've got, uh, 
you got $7,000 in cash here. What are you doing with that? They say, well, I just sold a car or, or whatever. And they go, well, we think that this might be involved in something illegal, so we're going to seize it until you show us uh, that it was done legally. And that puts a lot of hardship on folks. And it's just, uh, it's just not, I don't feel like that's right. I mean, that's not uh, the way well, things are supposed to happen. Uh, I'll tell you, Scout, uh, it's been almost 20 years now. Uh, back in 1996, when it first came out, a friend insisted that I read this book uh, called Unintended Consequences. And I read it, and I thought it was uh, kind of a neat book. And it mentioned uh, uh, those uh, civil forfeitures and stuff in there. And, and to be quite truthful, I thought it was BS. Right. And I got looking around. I was pretty ignorant back then. I got looking around and, and realized, no, this stuff is really happening. And over the course of a couple of months, I looked at a lot of stuff that, that I had taken for granted and realized that maybe I was looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. And uh, Well, <laughs> you, could do a, you can do a Google search. It'll take you a couple of seconds. And my wife is like, say, the master of the Google search now, and uh, you can do a Google search on civil forfeitures, and you will see uh, that it has turned into like a business uh, for a lot of, and we're not talking about just law enforcement because there are a lot of states now who are jumping on the bandwagon of civil forfeitures. Uh, I believe I was reading about the last uh, one of the, the examples recently was of Alabama, and uh, that Alabama had said now that uh, that if you have a safety deposit box and that it has been idle for uh, a year or more, that the state has the right to seize it. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I've had uh, safety deposit boxes before that I didn't access for two or three or more years at a time. And uh, I, I would be, I'd be very angry if I went to the bank to, to check the box and found out that it had been seized because I hadn't, uh, uh, you know, I hadn't accessed it. Now, I'm sure that they, they, they probably have, uh, I, I'm, I'm hoping that they have some type of system where they, uh, where they alert you that they're going to do it first, or they, or they attempt to alert you. I, I don't know. I'll, I'll have to, to do more research about that. But I know that that is a trend that is, that's been quietly going on in uh, the majority of the states across the nation, and that is there are setting limits now on the time that, uh, that safety deposit boxes and bank accounts and stuff like that can remain idle before they begin seizure processes. You know, we, we were all raised to obey the law and pay attention to the law and the Constitution, and we believe that we operated that way 100%. And I grew up uh, and was educated to believe in something called due process of law. And... These civil forfeitures are not due process in any way, shape, or and uh, people need to. Well, we've got 
we've got you have agencies, uh, all different agencies, uh, state, uh, county, uh, national agencies that are in, that are becoming involved in this type of process. Uh, I know that we we recently have been involved in it with uh, the county tax uh, department because they have. Uh, they have a process around here where they uh, they will raise your taxes and then they send a message uh, they they say they send a letter out to advise you of it and they give you a, only a certain number of days where you can uh, uh, where you can dispute it and uh, right. what they what they've been doing is, is what we found out is that they've been raising the taxes. They say they've been sending out the letters to the folks about it, but uh, when we ask them to produce the letters that they sent out, uh, they can't. And the letters that they send out, they're not sending them out by certified mail because that's going to cost them too. And that way, they just say, "Well, we sent a letter." Now, they don't have any records of it, and they can't produce any records of it. But what it causes the people to do is they, they have to fight it. They'll have to get a lawyer and try and fight it, and uh, and most of the folks won't. They'll just uh, they'll just accept the penalty or they'll accept the, the raised taxes because they don't know of any good way to dispute it or to fight it. And the government's just kind of bullying people. Uh, into giving up more and more money. Well, and, and people aren't aware of their rights in this matter. And uh, we've had the exact same problem here. Uh, and it caused a big upset in local government. We had a couple of officers from the assessor's office got, got sacked over it. Uh, and one of them still waiting. And, uh, you know, people need to wake up and become aware of what's going on in their local government. Uh, we tell people to call their their representative and their senators. But I'll tell you, if you take control of government at the local level, you beat 90% of the business right there. Uh, when you start controlling local government, the, the county party has to take notice of it, and they start paying attention, and... It gets up to the state, and the governor starts having to pay attention, and pretty quick it starts getting too hot for, for any level of government to tolerate. Uh, so they really need to start down at that local level, that county sheriff, that local chief of police, their city commissioners, mayors. Uh, here uh, in Otero County, New Mexico, I happen to be uh, affiliated with the Tea Party here, and our motto is uh, turning the light on cockroaches of government. And that's what we do. Sit there and point out all those little quirks, all the little idiocies and inconsistencies. And the next thing you know, people uh, start showing up at commission meetings, city council meetings, and elected officials start doing things the way people want when they know they can't get away with it. Uh, and people need to get involved in their government, and the local level is the first place to do it. 
put them right. on notice. Show them that you're watching. When uh, right. city commission meetings that seldom have an audience start having 60, 70, 80 people show up, uh, the attitude changes very quickly. That's right. That's right. If you will get involved locally and make sure that you're there as a witness, uh, it's going to make a big difference. Now, you can you can certainly, uh, for more information on this, and we'll try and do a show on this uh, sometime in the future because I, I think it's I think it's important for people to realize that they don't have to accept things uh, like the seizures and forfeitures and stuff like that. But there are ways to go about uh, defending yourself from them and that uh, you should be putting it in the ear of your representatives and letting them know that, that you don't think that, uh, that it's the business of the government uh, to be in the business of, uh, of trying to generate ways of, uh, of seizing and, uh, and taking forfeitures of money and stuff like that. Uh, you can certainly Google... Uh, government seizures or government forfeitures, uh, uh, and uh, and read more about it. Okay, let's uh, just stay on here with me, Sam. We're going to talk uh, about uh, uh, about. Uh, I want to keep reminding folks. We've had uh, a uh, show about this before, but I want to keep reminding folks about uh, water purification because of the. Uh, the five main tenets of survival is the 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 most important one is going to be water. Now, of course, the importance of any one tenet of the five tenets of uh, water, food, shelter, uh, security, and energy, the importance of any one tenet is certainly going to shift back and forth. Uh, if you're living on the banks of a 100% uh, pure, clean uh, water source, then water isn't going to be one of your biggest uh, worries. Uh, <clears throat> if you are, uh, uh, well, it, let me just, uh, that, that, that's a, enough that I say that, that it's going to shift back and forth the importance of any one tenant at any one time. It's going to shift back and forth through your circumstances. <clears throat> However, uh, water is going to remain one of the most important aspects of your survival. Having good, clean water for drinking and cooking uh, is is absolutely imperative. So, how are you going to to go about making sure that you have enough water? Uh, the first thing you'll need to do is make sure that you have some way to store water, at least enough water. So that if your water uh, supplier were to go out uh, tomorrow at noon, uh, that you could survive at least uh, two or three days uh, before you got into trouble. Now, you can go, uh, who knows, you can go uh, two weeks, three weeks, uh, even up to uh, people have gone 30 and 40 days without food. And I'm not going to tell you that it's an easy thing to do because it's not. Everybody knows you're... You eat a uh, you eat breakfast and by uh, certainly if you skip lunch by dinner time you're you're hungry and that <laughs> only gets worse if you keep skipping uh, all the rest of your meals every day for the next forty days it's going to get rough you're going to get you're going to end up getting sick and you're eventually will die from it water is going to be a lot quicker uh, without water uh, depending on your situation uh, you may perish 
Well, just like I said, depending on your situation, if you're out in the sun, out in the heat, you may perish uh, in between uh, three to five days without water. Now, certainly people have gone longer, uh, and certainly people have, have died uh, right at the two- or three-day mark without water, which you can do very easily. If you're out in, uh, in the boiling sun with no shade and you go more than 48 hours with water and you're walking trying to get somewhere, you're going to die. It's going to kill you. So making sure that you have enough water to survive should be high up on your list when you're thinking about uh, maintaining your preps, when you're thinking about becoming self-reliant, because the majority of us get our water because someone is sending it to us, either a utility company or it's coming to us uh, from a well via the electric company. So one way or another, it's being sent to us. Uh, there are not that many of us that are collecting the water ourselves and are supplying ourselves. Now, some people do. Some people have uh, uh, rainwater gathering systems. They have artesian wells where the, the water is under pressure in the earth, and uh, you can just uh, pipe it into your home that way. <clears throat> but that is certainly very few. So we're depending on the water to be delivered to us. Now, when it's not, we should, uh, we should certainly ensure that we have some other way that we can get the water that we need to survive. Now, a typical person, uh, if you're sitting in your, uh, your chair under the shade on a, uh, uh, say, an 85, 90-degree day, uh, you need uh, a gallon of water a day minimum. And uh, that's just for drinking. You need about a gallon of water per person per day. That's... Uh, that very quickly turns into a lot of water. Uh, a family of four uh, over the course of a month uh, is going to need uh, uh, close to 150 gallons uh, of water just to sit there and uh, not do anything. And that includes no baths, no brushing teeth, no cooking with water, no washing clothes, no washing your hands, any of that. I'm just talking about the water that your body needs uh, in order to survive. Now, certainly you can get, uh, you can get by uh, over a couple of days maybe with less. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that your body needs less. It just means that your body is shifting things around and it's getting by on less. You can do that for a couple of days, uh, and it may or may not cause any major problems, but you cannot do it indefinitely. Uh, if you need that one gallon, one gallon a day sitting in the shade, then then that's what you need. And if you don't get it, then uh, your body's going to start taking it out of. Uh, it's going to start shifting it around inside your body, and eventually it'll start shutting things down to try and conserve uh, what water you do have. You'll start. Your mind will start getting slow. You'll get weak, uh, confused, uh, and uh, eventually your body will end up shutting enough stuff down that you die. All right? So there, we've discussed why you need the water. Now, how are you going to get it? Uh, obviously, the first thing that you can do is make sure that you store some water. And we've talked about this many times before. Storing water, uh, at least a minimal amount, is not that difficult. You can certainly go to the store 
and purchase uh, cases of bottled water. Get a, you know, you'll everybody will get a big load and they'll run a sale on it. Uh, you can buy a case of 48 bottles, uh, 48 uh, pints of water uh, for about uh, five bucks in a lot of places. All right. So if you uh, if you put that on your shopping list uh, once or twice a week, then you can start building up a surplus that you can keep. And that the cases of bottled water are not that big, all right? They will store in your closet. You can put a stack of them in your closet. Uh, you can start sliding them under your beds. Uh, uh, you, can, you can start squirreling them away. Uh, try and make sure that you, when you're doing it that you're keeping them in a fairly cool, uh, uh, out-of-the-sun uh, location. Anytime you put plastic in the sun, the UV destroys the plastic, right? So anytime you have, uh, even if it's in your house, if the sun can come through the window and hit the plastic, it's eventually going to damage it uh, by way of the ultraviolet light. <clears throat> so keep it in a, uh, you know, in a cool, dry place uh, for it to, to get the, uh, the longest amount of life you can out of it. And uh, take it just a second and... Uh, Scribble the date that you got it uh, onto the package. You don't have to. You don't have to date each bottle. Just just put a uh, a note on the outside of the package and say, okay, I got this one in uh, uh, March of 2014. And then each time you get one, you'll you'll put that note on there, and then then use the water. You know, everybody will, at some point, will need to take some water with them in the vehicle or they, they're going to take some water with them to the football game or something like that. Use your, uh, your oldest uh, water first. That's going to go for everything that you're doing, all your food and everything else. You're going to use your oldest first, <laughs> but you're going to continue to replace it and continue storing it. Uh, if you have room, you can get some of the larger storage containers. That can either be uh, the five-gallon bottles that they sell. They sell those at all the stores now. Those are the uh, the replacement bottles that you have for the, uh, like the Ozarka water coolers and stuff like that. Uh, you can buy those and, uh, and fill them with uh, tap water, put the cap on and store them. I would still put a piece of tape uh, or something on the bottle and write on it the date that I had filled it. And then uh, every once in a while, I would take that bottle and I would uh, fill up all the water the water dishes for the dogs and then water all the plants with it and refill it anew, okay? Uh, with, your, with your good, clean, clear tap water. Make sure that you're kind of rotating through it that way. <clears throat> the, uh, if you're getting more and more serious, they make larger... Uh, containers than just the five-gallon ones. They'll make you. They'll make containers from five gallons to five thousand gallons. You can buy almost any size container that you can think of, whatever your budget and your allows. I would get. I would get what I could. The largest container that I could uh, store, and that's the one that I would get. I would make sure I had that stored. All right. Uh, once you've gone to your limit of what you can store then you're at your limit. Uh, let's, uh, let me remind you guys, too, though, of a dual purpose for storing water, and that is uh, 
in your freezers. Usually everybody will have a freezer side to their refrigerator, or you might have a uh, stand-up freezer or a lay-down freezer. <laughs> the the uh, open space in those freezers is bad news, okay? You don't want to have any open space in your freezers. You want to eliminate any open space that you can because that open space doesn't store any uh, any cooling property. That uh, two or three cubic foot of airspace that you're wasting in that freezer does, is not helping you at all. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that uh, that you have uh, like uh, containers, bottles of uh, like the two liter bottles or whatever that you can use. You can take those and you can make sure that your freezer uh, is completely filled. All of the air spaces are filled up with either the food that you put in there to, to keep frozen or with water containers. Now this has a dual purpose. One, it allows you to store water uh, in your home. You'll have that water that is stored inside your freezer, and that can also be used uh, if it's a warm day. You can. Uh, what I do is I'll take a two-liter uh, frozen bottle of water with me, and then I'll just drink it uh, as the day goes. As the day goes on, I'll drink that two-liter bottle one in the morning before lunch, and then I'll go put. I'll fill it up and put it back, and get another one. And I'll drink that one from lunch until the end of the day. So I'll usually drink about four liters uh, or more. I'll, I'll usually drink more, but I'll drink at least that four liters that I'll get out of the freezer uh, and take with me to work. Uh, you can do that with the smaller. You can do that with one liter or with the uh, one-pint bottles. You can use those uh, as uh, as cooling devices for your uh, – if you're going to take a uh, an ice chest somewhere, you don't have to go to the store and pay money for ice. You can keep a whole bunch of bottles, frozen bottles, in your freezer. When you get ready to go somewhere, you just pack those frozen bottles into the uh, cooler as your ice, and it keep when when that melts, it doesn't make a big slushy pool of melt that uh, ruins food or gets spilled out or anything. It stays within those containers. And the uh, the other thing it does is it keeps the the uh, the cooling properties of the freezer. It keeps it from losing its cooling properties when you open the door. When you open a door and you have two or three cubic foot of just uh, space of air, when you open that door, that falls out. That air falls right out of the refrigerator. You can I mean out of the freezer. You can see it. Uh, quite often when you do that, you open the door and you can actually see that air come flowing out and down onto the ground like uh, like molasses. You know, it'll just come right out of there and that's gone. That cooling ability is now gone forever. However, if you keep the all of the space in there packed with uh, frozen water bottles and stuff like that, you open that door and very little comes out. You close it back and uh, you've lost very little of the energy that's required uh, for to keep that unit cold. It doesn't have to spin back up and run, uh, you know, for another three or four minutes in order to maintain that uh, temperature in there because it didn't lose anything. It lost very little. Uh, and 
and here's a, a really good part of this. Say your power goes out, uh, and uh, maybe it's only out for a few hours, or maybe it's out for a day or two days. If you have uh, uh, 25% of the volume in your freezer, if it's filled with frozen water, then the temperature is going to remain safe in that freezer for a lot longer. So if your power goes out and you have uh, a quarter of the space is taken up by frozen bottles or, or more, then you're going to have the ability to keep that food at a safe temperature much longer. And, uh, you know, this happens to quite, quite often to folks, uh, you know, all across the country. You'll have, uh, for whatever reason, power will go out. And uh, if it goes out and uh, you leave uh, on a Friday night or Saturday morning, power goes out, and you get back on Sunday evening late, you open that freezer, and the power's been out for those two or three days, that food in there uh, might all be thawed out, and some of it might actually uh, be bad by that point. And uh, it won't be if you have uh, all of the void, uh, all of the void in there uh, filled with frozen water, okay? It'll help uh, carry you past uh, some of those uh, power outages, and it will keep your electricity use by that machine. It will keep it down to a minimum. So make sure that you uh, have kept your, that you're keeping your freezers packed with, uh, with water bottles, with water containers, uh, all of the spaces filled up. There should be a nice solid uh, wall in there with water. All right. I want to make sure I, I keep thinking about that, and I I want to make sure that I talk to you guys about that tonight. Uh, the uh, uh, I see uh, Ash is in the chat room now. Uh, he's saying that uh, when he lived in Louisiana. It was a standard practice to fill the bottom layer of any of your uh, of any of the uh, uh, lay down type freezers or anything with water filled milk jugs as a hurricane prep. Yeah, because uh, because they go through that a lot there, and uh, power can be out for quite a while, and any kind of uh, any kind of extension you can get on the time that you're keeping that those foods safe at a safe temperature going to be to your benefit, okay? So you're doing, you're getting uh, two birds with one stone. You're storing some of your water in the form of uh, ice inside containers in your freezer, and you're also uh, uh, extending the amount of time that the uh, food can be set, kept at a safe temperature, and you're cutting down on uh, the amount of energy that that device is going to use because it's not going to have to keep spinning up to bring the temperature back up from the voids that, uh, that you allow to fall out of the freezer every time you open the door, okay? It's going to keep it uh, packed solid. <clears throat> okay, so if you, <clears throat> if you have gone to the limit of your storing, then what do you have next? Well, you're going to have to figure out some way to treat water uh, if you don't have the ability to, or, or even if you have the ability to store water, I would make sure that I that I was familiar with and was practicing 
uh, my water treatment abilities, okay? Uh, I'll also mention that uh, I think this was three or four years ago that uh, the EPA had said that there were no longer there was no longer any water in the United States that it considered uh, any surface waters that it considered safe for drinking. Okay, none. None of the pristine streams that uh, you run across in the back country. No lakes water, no rivers, none of that. They don't consider any of it any longer safe for drinking. I remember when I was a kid, I used to drink out of streams all the time. I drank out of streams and creeks, and I even drank out of stock tanks before I was old enough, uh, before I'd seen, uh, uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe maybe eight or nine or ten uh, this was was the first time that I've actually seen one of the cows standing belly deep in the stock tank, uh, urinating and defecating while I was getting a drink of water. I mean, the cows can deal with that. Certainly they can. I've seen them drink water that was very frightening. They can deal with it, but you may not be able to deal with the same water that they drink. You know, dogs can drink out of the toilet. Uh, you might get away with that, but chances are you're gonna, it's going to make you very sick drinking out of that toilet uh, that, uh, that was used uh, only minutes ago for, uh, to hold some uh, feces. So you need to figure out or you need to understand that almost any water source you're going to use, that you're going to need to consider that source of water, that you consider that water contaminated until you treat it. Uh, now, wells might be a different story. I mean, certainly you can drink water out of a well without treating it, but that's not surface water. That's well water. <clears throat> I know that I've drank uh, water out of rivers and creeks uh, out west, up in the mountains and stuff like that, Uh I drank out of a stream in uh, New York. I drank out of that stream several times. Uh, well, actually, every time I go and visit, I drank out of that stream. Uh, so far, as far as I know, I'm not sick yet, but I'm sure it's just like a Russian roulette. The bottom line is you need to treat any water, uh, any surface water, as suspect until you have treated it. All right, now how do you treat it? Uh, one of the one of the the first things that you'll do to any water is you're going to try and strain uh, any of the large solids out of it. Now you can do that by pouring it through uh, a t-shirt that you folded several times. You can uh, take and uh, uh, you can take like a uh, two-liter jug, uh, you know, soda jug, or even just a, a one-liter. So a jug or even just a, uh, a pint uh, uh, water bottle. Uh, and those are fairly common. You can find them almost anywhere now. There are several billion floating around the planet. You can take that water bottle, cut the bottom off of it, and uh, stuff uh, like a, you know, cut a section of a, of a cotton T-shirt out or just stuff it in there and pour the water through the cotton T-shirt 
to filter out large particulate matter from it. Uh, now, you're going to want to do this no matter what else you're doing, no matter how else you're going to treat it. This is the way that you want to start out. Uh, whether you're going to boil it or you're going to run it through uh, any kind of a, any other type of a filter, uh, <clears throat> any anything you're going to do, you want to start with the absolute cleanest water that you can. So you want to pre-filter it uh, and get all of the large particulate matter out of it because <clears throat> even if you have a really good, uh, uh, like a ceramic filter or something like that, uh, on your water purification system, the more solids that you introduce into that filter, the less effective it becomes. So no matter what you do, the the water as best you can. Even if that, even if it's only taking off the shirt that you're wearing, and uh, finding a clean spot on it and pouring the water through that, that's what you're going to do. You get the large particulates out of it. Anything floating in it. Uh, anything that's uh, in the water, get it out of that. Then, uh, one of the most common ways that people will will you, they'll use to make water safe is uh, boiling it. Now, short of uh, you know a uh, uh, a very small micron size filter, uh, boiling is still one of the most reliable methods that we have for killing uh, the microbes, parasites, dead in the water, okay? It's still the most reliable method for it. What you'll do is you'll first do your pre-straining of the water, get the uh, large particulate matter out. Then you'll clean the, uh, the whatever you're going to use, a pot or the, the can, whatever you're going to use. You're going to clean it as best you can. Then you'll put the water in there and you'll bring it to a roiling boil. And then you'll keep it simmering, uh, they say, for uh, two to three minutes. Now, as far as, I, as far as I understand it, the water is actually safe to drink the minute it starts boiling. However, uh, due, to, due to the fact that every, uh, every molecule of water doesn't boil at that very instant, I would make sure that I boiled it for a couple of minutes. What's there, uh, uh, there's really no need to rush this process because it's a very important thing that you're doing, which is making yourself safe drinking water. Let it boil for a few minutes. And that way the water is, uh, has had a chance to circulate and all reach the uh, 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 high enough temperature uh, to, to kill the uh, microbes, parasites, bacteria, and stuff. Now, they also advise that you add one minute of boiling time to the initial, and they're going to call it 10 minutes of boiling uh, to try and make sure it's safe. Add one minute of boiling time for every 1,000 feet you are above sea level, all right? Uh, and I don't know the exact reason, scientific reason for this, but uh, I believe it has to do with the uh, the fact that water is going to boil out the 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 higher altitude you get to, the water is going to boil faster uh, as, you, as you go up uh, every 1,000 feet. So you're going to add a minute of boiling to counteract the fact that it's boiling faster. Uh, 
if you want to try and get the water to boil faster, you can certainly do things like uh, like making sure that you've got a, a cover or a top on whatever device you're using to boil the water. That keeps the, the heat exchange at the water surface from occurring. The water will boil faster that way. It'll, uh, it'll take less fuel to do this. You can boil it in a, a pot. You can boil it in your canteen cup. You can clean out a... Uh, uh, a tin can. Uh, you can make a wooden bowl and actually boil it in a wooden bowl by carving out a wooden bowl if you don't have anything else. Now, uh, uh, people have boiled water in banana leaves. Uh, it doesn't seem like it will work, but if you do it correctly, you can do it because the water uh, in the wood will actually be penetrating the wood and keeping it from actually burning through before it boils. So whatever whatever way you can, if it's possible, boil your water. And I'm going to tell you, too, that in order to ensure that you have, uh, you have safe water, I certainly wouldn't use just one method. I mean, I would use multiple methods uh, of purification uh, unless you're unless you're just uh, in a real hurry there's no reason not to uh, not to take uh, extra time and and actually even get uh, obsessive compulsive on this because this is a very important thing that you're doing like I said if you introduce water that is contaminated uh, and you're in a survival situation, it's very, very dangerous. If you get sick, then uh, you're going to, in most cases, it's going to be a type of sickness that's going to cause you to vomit and to uh, have uh, loose bowels and uh, urinate more frequently. It means you're going to be losing a lot more water. Now, you're going to be so sick it's going to be hard for you to keep going and gathering water and doing this. So you can put yourself in a very uh, deadly spiral by taking chances with your water. You know, they had a show on the other day. I'm not going to go into the show because I thought it was pretty hideous. They had a show on that was about uh, these people trying to survive, uh, and they were butt naked. There was a guy and a girl, and they were butt naked. And uh, they were out in the middle of the wilderness trying to survive. Well, that's really neither here nor there. The part of the story that I want to talk about is the fact that and it's a guy and a girl. And that the guy was out, uh, he was out foraging, and he got thirsty. He said, you know, uh, I'm, really, I'm really taking a chance on drinking this water. And he's kind of smiling when he said it, but, uh, but I'm going to go and drink it because I'm really thirsty. But don't tell so-and-so, the, the female that he's with. Well, he drank it, and he got deadly sick. Now, this did two things. It it, uh, it caused him to become so sick that they actually had to, to, to stop. They had to actually take him out of the show, airlift him out, in order to save his life. And his partner, who was counting on him, now was by herself. This is the kind of thing that will happen if you don't do this. So... So take the extra time. Use multiple methods to 
ensure that the water that you are drinking in a survival situation is safe. Pre-filter it through, uh, uh, through cloth to get the large particulate matter out. Boil it. Boil it uh, for the prescribed amount of time. Then run that, uh, once that water's cooled down, run it through uh, an additional filter or, uh, or use some type of uh, uh, sun filtration. Uh, you can add uh, some type of uh, 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 chlorine or something to it, and we'll talk about that just in, in just a, a second. But you can use multiple methods to make sure that, uh, that you are getting water that is going to be safe for you to drink. All right? Once you're sick from this water or you get a parasite or something, you're no good to anybody. All right, another thing you can use <clears throat> is liquid chlorine bleach. All right? Now, you guys have all seen the, you know, the big gallons of uh, Clorox and stuff that you use on your clothes or to clean uh, the uh, kitchen, stuff like that. You can add the, that liquid chlorine bleach to your water to kill parasites and microbes and stuff. However, make sure that the liquid chlorine bleach that you're adding is free of any type of soap or phosphates or other additives, all right? And uh, the way to do that is to make sure that when you go to the store and buy it, that you're buying the plain and pure Clorox bleach. If you simply must have some uh, scent for it, or your clothing or something, then buy an additional gallon, all right? Make sure that you are keeping that around. Now, you can treat your water with this, uh, and that's say you're using the, the chlorine bleach that, and the normal chlorine bleach has about a 5.25% sodium hypochlorate, uh, and usually the rest will say inert, all right? You don't want to have any fragrances or any other uh, added soaps or phosphates. You'll have a 5.25% sodium hypochlorite, and then the rest will be inert. You're going to treat one gallon of water. You're going to use eight drops of the liquid chlorine bleach. That's about an eighth of a teaspoon uh, to your clear water. Now, if even after pre-filtering it, the water is still cloudy, you're going to double that. You're going to use 16 drops, which is a quarter of a teaspoon, to the cloudy water. And that's going to, and then you're going to let it set uh, uh, for uh, uh, about 30 minutes to an hour before you use it. All right? And it's going to have a strong chlorine smell and perhaps even a taste to it. Now, you can alleviate some of this by taking that water and pouring it back and forth into a pre-cleaned container so that you're not pouring that treated water into a container or a pot or something that has had untreated water in it because that can recontaminate the water, all right? Uh, If you're going to purify, say you've got a five-gallon container, then you can put 32 drops in, that's a half a teaspoon, uh, into your five gallons of clear water. Now, once again... If it's a cloudy water, you're going to double that. You're going to put in uh, 64 drops or one full teaspoon to five gallons of clear water. Uh, Now, uh, I'll tell you that using liquid bleach is okay, but there's a danger to this method that comes with the fact 
that liquid bleach uh, loses uh, its potency rather quickly. You have that, so that what I'm saying is you don't want to you don't want to buy a whole bunch of liquid bleach and store it up uh, as part of your prep if you're not going to use it for something else uh, in the next six months because the liquid bleach uh, will use about 50%, it will lose about 50% potency over the course of a year. So if you go and get that jug, and that's once again, this is one of the reasons that I think that I want you to start marking down the dates of your, when you purchase something, and if it's bleach or something like that from a big store, you might want to add uh, one, two, or even three months to the date. You can write down the date you purchase it and then uh, slash and write the date nine months later uh, when it's going to be at only 50%, okay? Because if you uh, have a bunch of bleach that you're storing that you say, I'm going to use this to purify my water, and... Uh, and nothing happens in a year, two years, you go get that bleach and you put in the eight drops into your clear water for that gallon, you're not, it's not going to do the job. That means you're going to think that you, that you purify the water, but it's going to be, it's still going to have the possibility of containing bacteria, microbes, uh, parasites. So if you look at that jug and you see a date on it, you see it's a year old, you say, all right, it's a year old, I can expect it to be at 50% of its potency, I'm going to use 16 drops in this one gallon of clear water, all right? So how do we get around that? Well, the best way to get around that is not to use the liquid bleach. Now, you can certainly keep some on hand uh, as long as you understand it's going to lose, it's going to become less potent as, as it sits there, even more so if it's sitting in your garage exposed to sunlight and heat. It's it's actually going to lose its potency even more rapidly, all right, as long as you understand that. So the better alternative to that is to use the uh, uh, the dried uh, chlorine uh, crystals. And this comes in the form of the calcium hypochlorite that, that you can get uh, from the uh, swimming pool and hot tub uh, stores, right? Uh, and it comes in a powder, which which really uh, significantly extends the shelf life of this stuff. Your The, the dry uh, hypochlorite uh, can be stored, uh, I don't know, it can be, they say it can be stored uh, uh, even 10 years or more with very minimal uh, loss of potency, very minimal degradation to the chemicals, keeping it a dry cool place in an airtight container. That means if you buy a container, you don't break the seal on it, you keep it on in your uh, closet inside the house, not out in the garage exposed to sunlight and the heat, but you keep it in a dry, cool closet in your house or keep it in the cellar. It's going to be good uh, for uh, 10 years or more, all right? And it's going to be much easier to store this. Uh, you can store uh, a lot more than a gallon's worth in a gallon container, and uh, you can be ensured that it's going to last a lot longer, all right? So 
make sure that part of your prep, and it's not that expensive. You can go and you can you can buy, uh, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds, even 50 pounds of this uh, from your uh, uh, from the swimming pool and the hot tub uh, uh, stores. The way that uh, that you're going to use it is you're going to you're going to weigh this out and uh the best thing you probably do is get you some type of a container and uh and get you some scales get you some some decent scales that'll give you uh uh grams and ounces and you will fill that container to the top and then weigh it out so that you'll know how much uh calcium hypochlorite you're going to get into that thing in case you in case your your uh, uh, measurement device, your your scale stop working or something, you'll know how much will fit in that container that you're going to use. And <clears throat> the dosage is is going to be it's going to run uh, about a quarter of an ounce of the calcium hypochlorite per 264 gallons. All right, so. Uh, you'll have one gram uh, to maintain the chlorination of the water. You'll add one gram of uh, the dry chlorine uh, every week to every thousand liters, okay, every 264 gallons. Now, if you're going to use it for smaller amounts, there is a, there is a chart on there. You can Google this. Google the uh, uh, the chart for calcium hypochlorite uh, uses water purification. They'll actually give you a chart that will do uh, smaller sizes. Uh, if not, you can do the, the, the math on that with a pencil and paper. Uh, 1.35 uh, ounces per 264 gallons. All right? That will tell you, and you can use that to slide up or down uh, to do smaller amounts. <clears throat> and I certainly recommend keeping... Uh, a certain amount of this on hand, and even uh, uh, getting some uh, and getting you a nice uh, airtight container that you can put it in uh, to take it with you on uh, on trips and stuff like that. Uh, you know, to put in your backpack or in your vehicle, different things like that, uh, so you can carry it with you. All right, because that's going to be uh, a really good way of making sure that you can treat the water in some form or fashion. Now, this comes with uh, this comes with using chlorine. So you need kind of chlorine or chloride uh, or hypochlorite. does come with certain uh, dangers to it. So you don't want to do it. I, I would not recommend doing it uh, unless I needed to do it for a survival situation uh, because I would figure out other ways of... Uh, of uh, doing my water on a daily basis, if I was uh, if I was doing it in other than a survival situation, then we've got there are other there are other ways to do it, like uh, uh, ultraviolet light that you can use. You can hook up ultraviolet light systems now into your water lines, and uh, it will uh, kill the uh, bacteria, probes, stuff like that as the water is traveling through it. I would do that rather than putting chlorine in my water to drink it, all right? But if you if you don't have electricity to run the UV lights, 
then I would certainly do this. You can use iodine, all right, and that's usually what they give you for the, you know, the camping stuff, and that's what you use, I'm sure, when you're with the scouts and stuff like that. Uh, follow the instructions on that bottle of iodine. If there are no instructions, uh, as a general rule, you can use about 12 drops per gallon of water. Uh, if if I was getting water and I was looking at it going, if it wasn't just clean, clear water out of a running stream, if it was water out of a small pond or it was uh, stagnant water or something, I would certainly increase the dosage, uh, even up to double if I felt uh, if I felt it was needed and I would try not to drink that from that source, uh, I would drink as little from that source as I could. You'll put the 12 drops of water in the gallon, mix it up as good as you can, and then allow the water to stand for 30 minutes to an hour before drinking it. Now, you're going to have to you're gonna have to deal with the taste of the iodine, which there's nothing you can do about it. There's no way to make it less iodine tasting, but it will sustain life, and it will, it will kill a good amount. It won't kill all, but it'll kill a good amount of the uh, of the uh, contaminants in the water. I want to I'm going to tell you guys about another thing that that people are starting to use now. It's kind of a new thing. I, I don't know. Over the last uh, 20, 25 years, <clears throat> uh, people have begun using stabilized oxygen, and uh, you can use this uh, in the, the same fashion that you would chlorine or iodine. Uh, the the chlorine and the iodine do have possible side effects. Now, the stabilized oxygen is not supposed to have really any side effects or, or really any unpleasant flavors uh, to the water, any, any taste to it. If you're going to use this uh, for long-term storage, you can put uh, 10 drops of uh, of the stabilized oxygen into a gallon of water, and that's you know that's where you'll take your gallon of water, put the tin drops in, uh, cork it back up, and that will be going to storage for you. If the water has been chlorinated, all right? Now, if there has been no chlorination uh, added to the water, like from your from your city or whatever else, or you put some in, you're going to put 20 drops in. Uh, and uh, if you're drinking, uh, say you've got a, a cup of water, and that's how much you're going to drink, and you're going to add the water to the stabilized oxygen to it, then you'll put uh, between 5 and 20 drops for every 8 ounces of water that you're going to treat like that, okay? Now, if you want to find out more about this, you can uh, you can Google this. You can do some research on it. The uh, Like the, the products that are on the market now for stabilized oxygen, oxygen are things like uh, Aerox, uh, uh, Genesis 1000, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Aquagen, Dynamo 2, Aerobic uh, 07. These are some of the, the the names for the products that are on the market now. You can you can Google that and uh, and learn more about it. And this is a, another way that you can uh, that you can treat your water. Now, certainly, I would also make sure that in in if you in your home, you had things like uh, like Berk, uh, the Berkey water filters. They, those are fantastic uh, devices to use. Katadyne makes some great products. Uh, I would certainly invest 
in some of those uh, to keep in your house. And I would use them. I would use them on a daily basis. That's what they're made for. They can take uh, a lot of the stuff out that may slip by your uh, your water treatment facilities, and uh, and it can certainly also purify water that uh, uh, that you're a suspect of. All right. Listen, we're running out of time, and uh, I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. Well, we'll pick up this again. We'll pick up the uh, fire starting uh, and also the bulk, uh, dry foods and medicine. Uh, next week. Uh, for tonight, I want to thank you guys for uh, for listening. Uh, thank you, Sam D. Thanks, Ash, uh, and all the rest of you guys uh, who uh, who listen on a regular basis. Uh, I appreciate that, and uh, we'll see you guys uh, next uh, week, 7 p.m. Central. All right. Thank you all. God bless you, and uh, and take care of each other. Some good smoke